0: So I have to tell you, so last week I told you a little bit about my parents and how they made us watch scary movies our entire upbringing. Now I'm going to tell you another little story about my parents. I was raised by a couple of crazy Hoosiers. And when I say crazy, I am 99.9% certain I knew the Hoosier fight song before I knew Jesus loves me. Now again, i uh, my parents are good people. Okay, they are good people. They are just mad, crazy Hoosier fans. In fact, it goes something like this. Indiana, oh Indiana, Indiana, we're all for you. We will fight for them. So I used to have it memorized. Uh, and my parents had one major rule. They're, I mean, they loved us unconditionally, except with one thing. We were warned that we would be completely cut out of their will if we went to Purdue. I mean, it was just no one could call themselves an Ashbrook, that was my maiden name and go to Purdue. So it was just, I wouldn't even consider it. In fact, to this day, it's like Purdue, you know? I mean, I'm I'm sure it's a fine school. I was just raised, you know, in, in the hatred is probably not a strong enough word of Purdue. And I apologize if any of you went there. Again, I'm certain it's a fine school, but man, that would have been directly opposing everything my parents stood for. So my parents had a real dilemma When my sisters and I went off to college because I went to God's promised land of Lawrence, Kansas, where I became a proud Jayhawk. And my deceitful traitor of a sister, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, went to Mizzou. Now, I'm sure I've got some Aggies and some Longhorns in here who can relate to the tension that arises in family gatherings when you have Mizzou and Jayhawks, like Mizzou Tigers and Jayhawks in the same room. It's just going to get ugly, right? It's going to get ugly because you cannot be a Jayhawk and love anything that comes out of Mizzou. It's just a problem. And I'm sure my sister would tell you the same thing. So what were my parents to do? Well, they just they just went Switzerland. I mean, they, they just wouldn't wear any of the t-shirts. But I, I say this very much tongue in cheek to illustrate that there are some things in life that are just diametrically opposed to each other. And John has been giving us a lot of these contrasts, right? Love and hate, light and dark. And he is going to flush that out a little bit more for us as we continue on in our study of John's first letter. But the first thing I want you to notice, and you will never notice this unless you are a super nerd like myself, so John's whole letter has been in this matter of fact tone of voice. He is telling you what is and he is doing this by using something that you have not heard since you were in middle school grammar class, indicative verbs. Here's a really easy way to remember what an indicative verb is. It indicates something. So The floor is solid. I have just used an indicative verb. But in this section, he's going to switch over to the imperative voice. And that means simply that he's gonna start giving commands. And here's how I remember imperative. It's imperative that you do this. It has a sense of importance to it, okay? And so this is the first shift we see in his letter that he's kind of revving up, getting to the real thrust of his argument. So let's see. Here's our very first imperative. He says, do not Love the world. This is command language. Or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him or her. See, we have Jayhawks and Tigers right here. Things of the world, things of the Father. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever So our first comparative is do not love the world or the things of the world. And at first blush, this can be kind of confusing because what have the Gnostics been preaching all along? That spirit is good and yeah, the world is bad. And so is John suddenly like shifting course? Is he switching teams? Um, No, but to really understand what John is getting at, we need to talk about the way that the Jews and the early Christians, the folks living in the first century, understood both the world and the concept of time. So first of all, Jews and early Christians very much saw the world as good. You know, our boy John really loves the book of Genesis, and Genesis 1.31 says, and God saw everything that he made, and behold, it is very good. So the earth, and everything in it belong to the Lord and they are very good. And we also know that John is not using the world to talk about people. And we know this because back when he was writing his gospel, it's the most famous verse in the world, he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So we know that he's not talking about people because God dearly loves people. Well, let's talk about the way they looked at time. So the Jews and the early Christians saw time as um, two very distinct ages. And so do we. We talk about time in terms of B.C. and A.D. or B.C.E. before common era and C.E. Is that right? I don't remember. Anyway, B.C. A.D. That's what I stick with. Um, And so they saw the world as divided into the present age, as in the now, and then the age to come. Okay, now the age to come is the eternal age. It's God's age. And because God will completely remove all wickedness from the face of the earth, the first century Christians and Jews rightly believed that this world The the age to come would be perfect. And then they believed that the present world was ruled by the powers of darkness, okay, had been given over to Satan all the way back in the garden when the first man and woman rebelled against God. So we've got the present age bad, and we have the eternal age, the age to come, being good. Now, as Christians, we actually do have a name for this age to come. We call it the kingdom of heaven, And we believe that it's actually already here. Okay, we believe that the kingdom of heaven has arrived. It's already here in the church and in the hearts of believers. So, when Christ came the first time, he came to usher in the kingdom of heaven. And he established a new people. He established a new way of doing things. He established a new way of being, if you will. And we see this, I think, we see this best illustrated in what scholars call the Sermon on the Mount. And that's in Matthew chapters five through seven. And there's a word for it, it's called the Beatitudes. And uh, those, are, those are all the phrases where Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Jesus was orienting his disciples and the people who were in his audience, he was orienting them to this new way of kingdom thinking. And it's all upside down. It's the last will be first and the first will be last to... Um, gain you give, all right? It's like an inverted kingdom. Now here's the problem, okay? So the kingdom of heaven has been established. It has not been consummated. So when Christ came, he established the the kingdom of heaven. He started it, but when will it be realized in its fullness, Yes, in the age to come, in the age to come when Christ returns. And so what John is talking about here, when he talks about the world, he is talking about everything that sets itself up in opposition to God. Now, as one who went to the University of Kansas, I simply cannot endorse any team that is going to set itself up against my Jayhawks. All right, I can't do that. I cannot say I love the Jayhawks and yet wear a Mizzou t-shirt or, God forbid, a K-State hoodie. I can't do it. I cannot do that. I'd be lying to myself and those around me. I'm totally kidding and I need to be careful because Christy up there, who is changing my slides, is a K-State girl and I love her very much. It's the Koinonia Fellowship in us that can override all of our collegiate differences. But this is what John is talking about when he talks about the world and um, the things that we are not to love. So let's think this through. What are some of the things of the world that John might be including? And I really had to kind of wrestle through this because some of them are very, very obvious. I don't think anyone can look at at the sex trafficking, at the adult entertainment industry, at pornography and say, oh, that's fine. I mean, that is diametrically opposed to kingdom living, right? You cannot say you love people and then pay to watch people exploit people. You can't say that. You're not loving people if you are loving and being entertained by their exploitation and their abuse. But that's the big, hairy obvious. What are some of the more subtle ones? What are some of the ones that we might not notice right away or that might not occur to us? Here's one of the reasons that this is really murky for us. It's because we live in the world and we cannot divorce ourselves from from the world. I mean, we just can't. I mean, you cannot say all toys and trinkets are evil, clothes and shoes and all these things are evil, all TV is evil. You, You cannot say that because all of those same things can be used to bless and to edify, right? So how are we supposed to figure this out? How are we supposed to discern, okay, this is the good stuff, this is the bad stuff, well, fortunately, John explains that. He says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Okay, that's clear as mud. <laughs> I mean, that's like a little bit more, John, maybe. Um, let's talk about this word desire. This is a key word in understanding what he means, and this is the Greek word epithemia. And I honestly, I would not say this to any ESV translators face. Okay, but I really think that they softballed this on translating epithemia as desires. And you will see that the NIV, the King James and all of the other major translations go with a much stronger translation of lust. And and I will tell you that this word means lust. So I would translate this, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Um, Epithumia typically means a almost irresistible craving or a longing and it's almost always used in a very negative sense in the New Testament and John always uses it in a negative sense. Um, We tend, as Americans living in the 21st century, 21st, we tend to think of lust as always in terms of sexuality and I think that's part of what John is talking about. Um, Does our society have a lust problem? It is impossible to shield our children from sexual content and innuendo. Hello, grocery store line, magazine covers. Um, On my way into work, downtown Dallas, down I-35, on my way to, there is one big giant billboard that promotes a store that sells sex toys. And on my way home, there's another big giant billboard telling men they can please their ladies if they will just get a certain procedure done. Those make fun conversations with the kids once they learn to read. Yeah, those were fun. But um, the lust of the flesh also includes the notion of prizing, and this is where I think most of us get tripped up, at least I do. It has this sense of prizing pleasure and comfort over everything else to the kingdom's demise. Prizing pleasure and comfort over everything else to the kingdom's demise. So the lust of the flesh means that we have set our happiness as our highest ideal. Does our culture do this? Yeah, I was in the gym one time and I saw a sign that says, you are your own alpha. Alpha is one of the names for Jesus in the book of Revelation. It just uh, made me kind of laugh and want to cry all at the same time. But this notion of we all have this right to be happy and that, that like it's my ingrained right and don't step on my rights because my happiness is my God-given heritage, this is so deeply embedded in our country and our culture, I should say, because it's actually in our Declaration of Independence I mean, we all memorized this in the second or third grade. What does it say? We hold these truths, truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I have no problem with that. That they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and what? The pursuit of happiness. The pursuit, the all out, exertion, and chasing so that I can have everything I want. Why? Because it's all about me. Right? So that's American. It's not biblical. It's not biblical. If anything, Jesus never tells us that we have the inalienable right to life, liberty, and happiness. If anything, he tells us, no, you're going to crucify, you're going to um, die to self, take up your cross, and follow him. But we don't don't hear that message. We never hear that message, so how are we to know? Here's what we need to do if we're going to realign ourselves with kingdom values, if we're going to eschew the world and pursue the kingdom, then what we need to be doing is we need to be chasing holiness. Because John's going to tell us that chasing happiness means succumbing to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And you know where that gets us? Frustrated, anxious, depressed. Why? Because no one else is cooperating with us, right? Galatians 5, uh, 19 through 24 says this. Now, the works of the flesh, all right, all this pursuit of happiness, are evident sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries. Someone's been reading Twitter. Dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But when we chase holiness, when we make holiness our highest ideal and pursue Christ, we get it all. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus has have crucified the flesh with its passions and its epithemia, its lusts. So remember back in our first lesson how we talked about all of John's Genesis echoes, how even the very first words that he starts his letter with, um, that which was from the beginning, you remember that? He really loves the first few chapters of Genesis. Um, He's throwing back again to Genesis right here in verses 15 through 18. We're going to go look at Genesis 3, and I want you to notice Eve's progression as she took the fruit Genesis 3 verse 6 it says so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate so what do we have here When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, there's the lust of the flesh, and that it was a delight to the eyes, there's the lust of the eyes, and that it was to be desired to make one wise, that's the pride of life, she took it and she ate of it. So what is the pride of life? That's kind of an ambiguous term. Um, Let's talk about this word. This is uh, alatzaniah. Alatsania is fun. It's a noun, and it is one who struts about like a peacock. Uh, One of the commentators that I really like, his name is William Barclay, he writes, um, the Alatsania is the one who stands on the pier and brags about the ships he does not have, the parties he does not go to, and the houses he does not own. I might add she is the name dropper. She is the one who purchases Twitter and Instagram followers so she can get that little blue check. She is the one who has someone following her around at all times to catch pensive and emotive photos for social media, who takes a hundred pictures yet posts only one. Now, Is social media bad? Is this what John is talking about when he talks about the things of the world? Social media is neutral. It's like saying books are bad. Books are neutral. They can be used for good or bad, but a book like social media is just a medium. It's just a means of transmitting information. I don't think it's bad to post pictures. In fact, I love following you on Facebook and Instagram. I love seeing what your kids are up to. I love celebrating your anniversary anniversary, and the things that go well for you. I love when you post things that aren't going so well so I can pray for you. So, I, I mean, I have no issue with social media in general. So where is this line? What are the things of the world and the things of God? So when John says, do not love the world, I think this is more about, uh, I think this is less about possessions and more about positions. I think it's less about possessions and more about position. In other words, what is the position of your heart toward those things? Are you using it as a comfort? Are you turning there first? First? Does it come from this desire to chase your own happiness at the kingdom's demise? When we live for the world and we fit God in around our schedule, so long as it's convenient, that's where the line is. It's less about possession, more about position. And why is this so important? John says, because the world is passing away, because the world is passing away with all of its desires, all of its lusts, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So some of us, in fact, probably every single one of us um, in this room have been taught that when we die, you go to heaven, okay, or you go to a better place. But most of us, where did grandpa go when he died? He went to heaven. That is actually theologically inaccurate. Don't panic, do not panic. Jesus and Paul both say that to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. So when a loved one dies and they knew and loved the Lord, they are taken immediately into his presence. But that's not heaven, that's not necessarily heaven. And so um, if we're gonna understand heaven, we actually have to go back again to Eden. To understand heaven, you have to understand Eden. So Eden was more than just a garden, okay? It was, it was more than just a place on a map. Eden was this special, sacred place where heaven and earth overlapped and intermingled. It was a, a heaven-earth place where God and man could dwell together and coexist together. And it was beautiful and it was perfect and it was a paradise and there was more than enough and there was harmony in everything. Okay, it's the heaven earth space. So, what's going to happen when Christ comes back in the age to come? Well, scripture tells us that the earth will be rolled up like a scroll, that's a metaphor, but John tells us that this world is passing away, so what's going to happen? The book of Revelation tells us that God is going to renew the earth and the heavens. He's going to recreate the heavens and the earth and the new heaven earth space. We will dwell with the Lord, but it'll be another Eden, it'll be another heaven earth space, but this time it's going to be in the form of a magnificent, glorious city where we will live and we will work and we will have relationships and we will do all of this in recreated bodies. So for those of you who are like, I just don't know about floating around on a cloud and playing a harp all day. This is good news for you. That's not what you're going to do unless you're a harpist and that's what you want to do for your work. But the difference between earth and the recreated earth is that in this present age, it's ruled by the powers of this dark world, right? But in the recreated heaven earth space, The presence of sin is completely eliminated. That means there will be no more lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, because you won't have the ability to sin. It's going to be completely burned up. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that good news? So this earth, this present age is passing away and so is everything in it. And so John is making a case. He's telling us not to get wrapped up in the stuff of this world. Why? Because today's treasure is tomorrow's trash. I mean, honestly, everything in your purse right now and your purse is just the stuff of tomorrow's landfills. And so when we live for this stuff, John's like, oh, you are investing in a burning building. It's all going down. What would he have us invest in? Kingdom things, eternal things, invest in people, invest in relationships, invest in kingdom work. I think we have full-blown permission to enjoy our stuff. We just can't live for our stuff. Okay, verse 18, he says, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Be honest, who's been excited to get to the Antichrist passages? Come on, I was, I am. Okay, therefore... What's the therefore, therefore? We have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. How do we know that it's the last hour? Because we have all these little Antichrists running all over the earth. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Hello, loop-de-loop writer. Okay, so what is John talking about when he says antichrist? Your homework addressed this really well, I thought. Anti means against. Christ refers to Jesus, the Messiah, or the anointed one. Um, I want you to look again at verse 18, and notice how it says, and as you have heard. So this was not new information to um, the recipients of John's letter, So, where had they heard this before? Where had they heard that Antichrist was coming? Your homework alluded to a warning that Jesus gave his disciples about false false messiahs. I'll read it to you. It's in Matthew 24. It says, then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, so if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, or Look, um, he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. And so I, I think that I, I think John probably does have this in mind as he is writing this, but I, I am actually more inclined to believe that he might be riffing off of Paul a little bit. Remember, Paul's letters had been in circulation for 30 years by this point. And there is a passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 that talks about the man of lawlessness, okay? And here's why I think this, here's why I think this. Matthew uses pseudo-Christ and pseudo is false. And a false Christ is someone who says, I'm Jesus, right here, I'm your Messiah, Worship me, that's a false Christ. But John does not use pseudo. Um, he says anti, anti, and anti means against. And now, is a pseudo Christ a false Christ working against Christ? Yes, if you go running around, I'm Jesus, you are definitely opposed to Jesus's teachings and you are working against his kingdom. But not every antichrist is claiming to be Christ. And so I think that's at least worth a note, if nothing else. Look again at verse 19. It says, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that antichrist is coming. Now, what I want you to notice is something that's not there. There's no article there. It doesn't say that the Antichrist is coming. Um, Is there a capital A Antichrist coming? Yeah. Yeah, that's who Paul talks about when he says the man of lawlessness. This is... At the end of the age, there will be someone who sets himself up in direct opposition to Christ and Christians and will fully be given over to the systems of the world. Um, Is the spirit of Antichrist already at work in the world? I don't know anyone who would deny evil is real. I, I I, I don't think anyone would deny that there is a force that is evil that actively opposes all good. Is big A Antichrist here right now? Let's not even waste our time chasing that thread because through, uh, since Christ ascended to heaven, people have been saying, it's him, it's him, it's him, it's him, it's him. We're not going to know until we know. And so I, I think that it's good to know. It's good to know your eschatology. It's good to know how the book ends. It's good to know the book of Revelation. But I don't think we need to spend endless hours trying to figure this out because we're just not going to know till we know. Okay, John, uh, 1 John 2.20. Then he says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. So what is this anointing? So anointing in the Old Testament and in the first century was a ceremony and it was designed to set someone apart for a role or for a task. Uh, it was done with either olive oil or some other fragrant oil, and it could be done by touching oil on their forehead, or in some cases, you just poured a big thing of oil on their head. Um, this uh, is something that the prophet Samuel did to Daniel to anoint him, um, not Daniel, David, to anoint him as king, okay? Um And while the act of anointing is symbolic, people in the first century and really as as far back as history goes, definitely believed that there was something that happened in the anointing process where the person being anointed was given some kind of authority, perhaps some kind of ability, some kind of knowledge or insight that specifically prepared them for the role they were stepping into or the task they were about to do. So when John says that we are anointed by the Holy One, what does he mean? Well, there is something that happens. There is something that happens on a spiritual level when we just kind of throw up that white flag and we say, my, na- my way is not working. I cannot get this right. I am desperate for a savior. And when we just surrender to the Lord, there is something that happens. And theologically speaking, what happens is that your surrender ushers in the spirit in such a way that you are specially anointed and you are given a sense that he's there. You're given an awareness of his Holy Spirit guiding you, convicting you, affirming you, loving you, warning you, okay? And so that is what I think that this is all about. And I believe that he is also anointing us for a task because we are Christ's ambassadors in a dark world, we are the light bearers, if you will. If you have the Holy Spirit, if you have that anointing of the Holy Spirit, you have a light in you that, the, that some in the world are going to be repelled by, but that others, like a moth to a flame, are just going to be drawn to, and they won't even know why. But that's what it is, because you have been anointed and appointed, anointed and as God's children, and appointed to be a light bearer, a bearer of the truth in the world. And scripture also tells us that upon this, uh, the spirit gives us wisdom, insight, knowledge, understanding, discernment, which is that weird feeling in your gut that tells you something's wrong, but you can't quite figure out why. That's discernment. Okay, and then it says, you, what does it say? You all have knowledge. Okay, this is, a weird line uh, and you might have a footnote in your Bible because what the Greek actually says is you know all things do any of us in here know all things I have two teenagers that think they do, but no, we do not know all things, and so we know that's not what John meant. I think the ESV, the English Standard Version that you all have, really does catch the sense here. John is saying, you all have knowledge. So what were the Gnostics peddling? Like, What was their, what was their banner that they, they hung at every meeting? It was the secret knowledge, right? They were the enlightened ones. They had come to this knowledge and if you followed them, you'd have the secret handshake, pinky swear knowledge that not everybody could get. And so I think what John is doing here is he's just fighting back against the Gnostics again and he's saying, you don't need new teaching. You have the teaching of the scriptures. You have the teaching of the Holy Spirit in you. You don't need new knowledge. If you know the gospel You've got your knowledge right there. Um, In verses 21 through 23, John elaborates on the identity of the Antichrist. They are the... I didn't put it in my notes where is it 21 through 23 something about the lie Uh, I write to you because you do not know not because you do not know the truth but because you do know it so he's saying I've told you these things you've read my gospel you can trust this and he says no lie is of the truth who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ and what I think John is doing here I'm so convinced of this. I think he's riffing back on Genesis again, and I think he wants us to think of that very first lie. In his gospel, uh, I wanna say it's chapter eight, maybe verse 44, he writes of Jesus saying, "'Satan is a liar and the father of lies. "'When he speaks, it's only lies "'because lying is his native tongue.'" But what was that very first lie all the way back in Genesis three? It's not like the serpent went up to Eve and said, everything you've heard is a lie and I've got the truth. That is not at all what he did. What did he do? He moved the truth one tick that way. Did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The best way to get people to fall for a lie to mix it with the truth. Does God really want you to not do that? My God would never ask anyone to do that. My God wouldn't call you to give that up. Well, where can I read about your God? Because this God does call us to holiness. And I think it helps us also to remember why God warned them not to To go their own way anyway. Does anyone remember why God didn't want them to take that fruit? Because on that day you will surely die. You see, God's not restrictive. He's extraordinarily generous. He just keeps us from the things that are killing us. Because to constantly live our lives for ourselves, indulging every craving is killing us. It's killing us, and he loves us too much to let us continue down that path. I'm getting so behind. Okay, verse 24. Then he says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. That word abide is the Greek word meno, and it means to to stay, to rest in, to continue in, to remain. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, and what is that? It's the gospel. Then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise he made to us, eternal life, the age to come. And what is the gospel? What is this thing that he wants to abide in us and us in it? It's that God so loved the world and you that he sent his only son to live the life we couldn't live and die the death we deserved so that we could have this eternal life in this beautiful, perfect heaven earth place where we won't even have jealous thoughts, not even for a second, because even the slightest hint of sin will have been forever removed. And how do we let this abide in us? By remembering it, by rehearsing it, by reading it, by studying it, by practicing it, by having friends who, who affirm this in you and don't make fun of this, of this way of life that, that God is so passionate about us living. By letting what, this is so important, we let it abide in us, By letting what Jesus did for you live larger than anything anyone has done to you. We abide in God's truth by focusing on Christ and letting what he did for us live larger than anything that's been done to us. I kind of riffed that from Christine Kane, but it's such a solid, good statement. And then John gives us two more imperatives, two more commands in verses 27 and 28. He says, but the anointing that you received from him, that anointing, it abides in you, it remains in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. Okay, is John using kind of a hyperbolic, is he using hyperbole to make a point? Yes. Yes. He is not saying, there's nothing else you can learn. You've reached the end of learning. (laughs) That is not what he's saying. But he's saying, hey man, if you've got the gospel, if you've got that down, I'm not worried about the rest. If the gospel is abiding in you, then you know and you don't need any new teaching. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So John reminds us that someday we are going to stand face to face with Jesus and this should not fill us with dread. This should fill us with joy. You know what we dreaded at KU? Nebraska. You know why we dreaded Nebraska? Because we were just three hours away from Lincoln and all the Nebraska people would come in their red and our colors were red and blue. And so we couldn't tell who were the good guys and the bad guys. And I worked at Applebee's and they would literally take over our town and my Applebee's and they were just obnoxious and they always won. They always won because we did not have a good football program. And so I have this dread. It's like literally, we hated Nebraska weekend. What if I knew we were gonna win? In fact, what if I knew that it was gonna be like 50 to nothing? Think I'd dread it? Oh no. I'd meet him at the door. Come on in, Nebraska people. Sit at my table. Let me pour this drink on your head. Just kidding. I would never do that. I was actually a pretty good waitress. Um, Why can we have this confidence? Because this battle, this war, is already won. Like our enemy is already defeated. Now because we live linearly and we are bound to time and space... We still have to fight, but God is working in you. And Paul says he is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. God is very much invested in this on your behalf. He is very, very invested on your progression in your faith. And so we can have confidence. How do we do this? Let's revisit our imperatives and then we're done. John uh, 1 John 2 15 says do not love the world or the things of this world as I read this the first time through going through my notes I was like that is just so extreme don't love the world anything nothing But I think what we need to do is we need to put this back in its original context. And I don't mean historical context. We spent a lot of time on what the world was like when John was writing this letter. But what we tend to do in a Bible study is that we like take these verses and we parse them out and we forget that when John's hearers heard this, they actually heard it in all one sitting. And so what is the context? What is the context here of do not love the world? It's what came right before it. It's verses 12 through 14. And he said, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake, not because of anything you've done for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him. You know him who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know him. You know him. You know you can trust him. You know he's for you. You know that he is not leading you into death, but he only leads you into life. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you young men because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Therefore don't love anything in the world or the world. Why? Because you've overcome that. So don't go back to it. Like you've beat the addiction. Don't go back to the addiction. You've fled the toxic relationship. Don't go back to the toxic relationship. Not when Jesus died to set us free. You died to selfishness. Don't start reading all those ads that pop up on Instagram. You will end up with 25 things you don't need, says the girl who's guilty of this. Now that we finally know the truth, let's not go back to the lie that tells us Christ can't fulfill us. No, it's this thing. It's this car. It's this new relationship. It's, you know, it's fill in the blank, not when it's only Christ. Okay, I've got to wrap. All right, so what should we do? Command number two, we are to abide in Christ and let the word of Christ dwell in us. Stay in community. Get connected with people, with the people of Christ through his church read the scriptures and reject the seduction of the world. And here are your questions to reflect on this week. Where have I let comfort and complacency keep me from pursuing the kingdom of God? And what is one thing I can do this week besides Bible study to help me abide in Christ? Heavenly Father, we love you, and we're so thankful for you and for your word. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this group of women, Lord. I pray that as they go to small group, that they would just um, sense your presence with them and that their conversation would be rich and pleasing to you, Lord God. I pray that you get them home safely and that uh, they would just fill you with them, Lord. We pray these things in the beautiful name of Jesus and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.